Hello and welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. Don't get it twisted. This is the only podcast in human history where two brothers talk about a thing they like. And that thing is comic books. I'm one of the two brothers, and I'm also a kind of comedian. I'm a lifelong comic book fan, and I'm a fan of uh, tea. My name's Will Hines. Hmm. I guess I am all those things except for one of them. Uh, and I, and that throws me off. I guess I don't like tea. <laughs> well, you I don't could know, be. I don't know. And and then more besides tea. Yeah, but it doesn't what, that doesn't plus, work, right? If the, and and so much more, I can make it work. Can't follow, but not that one thing, right? <laughs> I'm all those things except for one thing, and so much more. It's confusing. <laughs> it's confusing, but it it still puts you ahead. I don't know. Now I don't know. I'm not a fan of tea, so I feel like now you're gaining on me. Do you hate tea? Or are you neutral on it? I don't like tea. Uh, I've been, I'll drink it if I'm sick and told to, um, uh, but that's about it. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think, I still think you're going to come out ahead in, in somehow by the end of this podcast, you will be seen as better than me. Um, Kevin, we're doing another cosmic rays and correspondence episode. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, we used to do something called mutants and mailbags and it was, as you know, well, a, a kind of a worldwide sensation. That's right. Where we would cover Chris Claremont's X Men, and we would yeah. answer emails, and it was bigger than comic books, <laughs> and it was confusing why it was so big. Yeah, Cosmic Rays and Correspondence not quite as big yet. It's gotten really big in Europe. Okay, and, that's interesting. And, and parts of Asia, but not like kind of not all of it. It's mostly like it's more might be a, uh, a bit of a slow burn. Yeah, and so I mean, I don't know, Muse and Mailbags wasn't an immediate worldwide sensation, but anyway, it's growing, and that's exciting. The people are getting excited about it. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't realize it was the same podcast, the same, basically the same thing they loved. Right. Um, it a lot of people listen to our podcast don't speak English. Which is also confusing. It's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm happy that people found something in it they enjoyed. Well, we're going to keep going, uh, even, mm-hmm. e- even if it takes the world a long time to catch up. And... Uh, I guess I'll explain what Cosmic Rays and Correspondence is. I don't think and, you need to. Okay. And um, – No, go for it. It's a, we, we go over issues of John Byrne's run on the Fantastic Four from the mid-'80s, which Kevin and I loved as kids. And then we also read some mail from our readers. Listeners. Um, yeah, that's right. Listeners. <laughs> Remember, our podcasts are not books. That's something you taught me. <laughs> How many mistakes have – what are the big mistakes we've made? So nonplussed was my big mm-hmm. one. You called Emma Frost Emma Stone. Yeah. Uh, I got – every. I thought everybody was Wolverine for a while. That's right. <laughs> we we made another one in a recent one. We have an email for someone who you, – you had mentioned Ewan McGregor was the star of 28 Days Later. Yeah. And I didn't correct you. It's Cillian Murphy. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, so we got an email about that. So uh, that'll be some, that'll, that's part of our correspondence. Oh, because he's in. You McGregor is in Shallow Train's, Grave. Shallow Grave and Train Spotting. Yeah. So I, I, okay, it's a, it's, it's wrong and it is stupid. But yeah. it, there is some connection I mean, to a smart thing. You McGregor would have been great in Twenty Eight Days Later. Oh yeah, absolutely. But even even as you even as you started to correct me, I was like, "Well, I know I got you McGregor right, so what could I have gotten wrong?" And then yeah. it was like, "Oh, <laughs> I think you said it." I think we were trying to remember. I forget exactly how it went down, but I think it was something where you like, I was like, "Who is that?" And either 
there was a pause where we were trying to remember who was in it. You said you and McGregor, and we were like, "Great, let's move on." I think is what went down. You know, <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it was Steve Ditko inventing Daredevil's costume uh, confidence oh, yeah. in both our hands. Like so that sounds right. That's the most egregious mistake we've made relative to what our podcast is no. about. Like to I get think Emma's- that is that is the right decision. <laughs> I think it fits that Steve Ditko would. I mean, he did reinvent Iron Man's armor. It's not crazy that he it's would not have, crazy like, to think he would have done it. That that's and, and at that time period, that is the type of thing he would have done. In so. a comic, we were not we did not read. We have not read that era of Daredevil. We don't know anything about it. But um, it's it's a plausible, although totally yeah. wrong thing that we said. Sure. Um, I think most of our mistakes are plausible. I guess that's true. Yeah, Emma Stone could have been the name of the White Queen in X Men. <laughs> exactly. I guess it sounds like a superhero looks name, like Wolverine. Okay, that one is tougher. That's a tougher sell. <laughs> Calling a Wolverine once is not a big mistake. Obviously, it was like the fifth time you did it that it became. My, my brain was just so stuck on it. Crazy. Anyway, so um, we're doing some John Byrne issues, and I can't wait because Kevin, we have some bangers today. And yeah, we, uh, we, got, we, uh, we have we have one of our favorite comic book issues of the John Byrne run and really one of our one of our fave faves. Like I would say my absolute favorite of the John Byrne run. Yes. And definitely one of my favorite comics from the 80s of Marvel, if not all time. Uh, when I was rereading it, it today, my heart my heart jumped, Kevin. I was so we covered that issue um, with the Marvel podcast, The Pull List. The Pull List, right. The official um, Marvel Comics podcast for a yeah, while. Yeah, we were on that, and that's the issue we talked about. We're going to talk about it again today, and I am I was just as excited to reread it. Me it's, too. We'll talk it, about it maybe next it's time. It's really good. Yeah, maybe every episode we should cover <laughs> that issue. Um, well, I can't wait. And we're talking about – that's issue 245, Childhood's End, which we'll get to today. We're going to do, what, 240, 243, 244, and 245. No, no 244, 245, 245 246. yeah. And then uh, we're going to cover Ewan McGregor's uh, filmography. Right. So uh, To make it up to Cillian Murphy. Well, Cillian Murphy was so good in season four of Fargo that I just... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just saw Cillian Murphy do the voice three? of uh, uh, the, um, the uh, uh, cricket in Pinocchio by uh, Del Toro. How's the Del Toro one? Oh, it's... Heart- heartbreaking? It's really good. And I don't know who it's for. I wrote this review on my Letterboxd. Follow me on Letterboxd. Um, what's your what's I, your handle? What's your name? I, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, probably good, Kev good Hines. Luck. It's generally Kev Hines, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I wrote this. I don't know who it's for. Like there's parts of it that are clearly this is a kid's movie. But I can't imagine watching it as a kid. It is so sad. Yeah. And so tragic. The beginning is sad and the end is sad and there's sad parts in the middle and I found it all heartbreaking. And it's also beautifully animated and beautifully performed and it's a really cool story. It, it's not for kids, but it's not for adults either. It is for me and a handful of people, I think, that fit in the perfect wheelhouse for that movie. But I love that it existed. Exists. You are Kev Hines on Letterboxd. That's, I'm generally Kev Hines on all social medias if it's available. And uh, I'm consistent. I'm... I'm Will Hines. I don't know what my handle is, but it's a, uh, yeah. But it's a. Uh, I guess a search for my actual name. I don't know. How this yeah, we want to get All a right. big letterboxed following out of this. So, um, and before we get to Cosmic Grays and correspondence, oh, we also have a big letter from Chris Gethard. Uh, that's last episode that went up today. <laughs> yes, yes, we covered that already. We can't read it again. We're in the we're in much. the post we're in the post Gethard letter era of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, um, before we get to that, I wanted to got we got to do one last Let's, send off know, to our screw it insta push. That's right. Um, we are this will this episode will drop on the twenty eighth. So technically, the insta push we're saying goes to the end of the year. So you've got three days left to get on in the insta push. If you mm-hmm. do it after that, I guess it still counts. I don't we'd, know. What we'd it. still really love it. There's no reason to turn down promotion of our podcast, but it's going to be a little less special. We're going we're going to stop pressing it at the top of our podcast. So if we're going to stop be... pushing the screw it insta push. The screw it insta push screw it push. push push. We'll end. <laughs> but the so screw if you want to be part, can continue. If you want to be part of the screw it insta push push, you got to do it now. Yeah. Um, if you want to just be part of the screw it insta push, you can. That's do it your round. That's, that's your round. That's all the time. Uh, and to be part of the screw it insta push push, you take <laughs> any of our Instagram posts and then post it to your story with the hashtag screw it insta push. I notice a lot of the people doing screw it insta push are forgetting that hashtag. They're yeah. just putting the they're just they're they're putting an at sign and then our account, which is good. That's I mean, truthfully the more important part. More important part, but would it kill you to put a hashtag screw it insta a push? Long, cumbersome. I put it every time when I repost them, and it's long and cumbersome. But now my Instagram is starting to know it. It's like you mean this. I get, to, I, but I still have to get to screw it insta, and it's like you want to put push now. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> oh, you should have gotten it earlier, but <laughs> it'll learn. Um, so please t- uh, be part of that, and then um, yeah. t- should we move into our? Are kind of like um, miscellaneous section. Yeah, I guess I sort of jumped the gun when I talked about Pinocchio a little bit, but um, so Pinocchio, you saw Pinocchio. Yeah. yeah so am I right? There was a Pinocchio in December that like there's the been Robert like, Zemeckis, and then now there's the Del Toro. There's one. been I think three Pinocchio movies in like the last two and a half years. Um, there was like one with Robert Benini. Is that right? Robert, Roberto Benini. Roberto Benini. Although uh, maybe I'm th- wrong because I get everything wrong. But I've heard that was terrible. Didn't see it. And then there was one recently by Disney with Tom Hanks as Geppetto. Heard that was terrible. Yeah. The, um, the letterboxed reviews on that were just straight up hilarious with how low the stars were. Um, and then uh, this one uh, by Del Toro uh, that is stop motion animated and is beautiful. It's it's a movie apparently he's been trying to get made for a while and nobody would give him funding. And I agree with that decision by all studios <laughs> because it it's not a kids movie and it's not an adult film. Like I just don't know who it's for, but Netflix at the time I guess they funded it was still like funding everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great beautiful film and I'm glad it exists and I'm glad it was made, but it is one of those films where I'm like you put a lot of money into a film that I can't imagine being a huge hit. I, I uh, you know, I've become a fan of the Blank Check podcast that goes over movies, and they mm-hmm. they sort of mentioned, I think, that a lot of directors seem to be obsessed with Pinocchio and want to make the Pinocchio story for some reason. That it's this like one, a, th- a thing that auteur directors want to do. This one also uh, takes place during uh, pre World War II Italy, okay. like just just a, like fascist Mussolini era. Okay. Uh, uh, like leading into World War II. But when I say pre, I mean like I don't think the war is in full force. Okay. Um, which is, of course, very fitting <laughs> for this director uh, when you think of like Pan's Labyrinth and things like that. But it, it, it yeah. adds a, like another layer of darkness to it. Yeah. It is right from the start. It's such a sad movie. Uh, and it just it's it just it never it, there's funny parts but it doesn't really there's no part of this movie where i'm like oh now it's just fun i'm like this is sad 
Um, but it's cool and beautiful and it's the designs are great. Um, and I love stop motion animation. I really do love, I don't know if I've seen a bad stop motion movie. I can't remember last time, uh, like since nightmare before Christmas and Coraline, I feel like they, there's very few of them, but every one I've seen has been good. So yeah, there's a, a Jordan, uh, uh, peel pool. Jordan pool. That's right. Are you, oh, you talking about the you talk about the Keen Peel? Yeah, yeah, Keen nope. Peel. Yes. Who's okay. Jordan? Who's Peel? Who am I thinking I, of there? Um, I, I'm not sure. Jordan Peel uh, uh, produced one uh, with with uh, uh, called Wendell and Wild, I think, that I haven't watched yet, but it looks great. Anyway, I love stop motion. There's something about it that just is very beautiful and enchanting, especially in a world of like computer generated animated films. There's something still. Um, there's still there's a human touch to uh, stop motion that doesn't exist in other animated films as much anymore. Anyway, I really recommend Pinocchio, but not for your kids. I'm not going to show it to my six year old. <laughs> right. OK. Uh, I don't believe he exists, but um, mm-hmm. fair. That's um, I- I've heard that, but it, it intrigues me. It intrigues me to to see it. Yeah. You're uh, heartless, so it might not affect you as much. Yeah, I might love it. You I mean, might be rooting for Mussolini too much. He's not as much in the movie enough for you, probably. He better be in it somewhat. I mean, <laughs> I mean he is in it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He shows up in the movie. It's a weird movie. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah. Um, I have a comic book uh, miscellaneous thing to get into, right. which is I, I, I hinted at this last episode. But oh, yeah. I, read, I read the Alex Ross uh, Fantastic Four Full Circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read that? Yes, I have. Uh, man, it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. And it was so fun. To, this is where he basically does a part two to this man, this monster mm-hmm. um, with the FF. And although I do think the story is good and it's interesting, the story is interesting. Uh, no surprise. The art is the star of the show. Just seeing the FF drawn in that Alex Ross, whatever, however you describe it, that kind of throwback slash vintage painty look painterly painterly look uh just gives the story such depth i was uh i was wrapped it was also it's not quite as painted as like marvels or kingdom come it's it's somewhere in between that and like normal pencil work he did something a little different it feels like that's true i don't even actually know if it was painted but it has that kind of yeah photorealism that he brought to his paintings Mm -hmm. um it it he definitely kind of did a different style than he does on his covers and stuff. It's still very like it's unmistakably Alex Ross art, but uh, it is a little different. I, yeah, the art is tremendous. And uh, is it unique for him to be writing his own stories entirely? I don't know if I mean I'm sure he's maybe written like a short story or something, but he has not written much, if if anything. And we I know that he's a big collaborator when he'll when he'll he'll. He'll draw stuff. I mean, um, I mean, I can't remember that. the last time he did a sequential story beyond like he probably did like a one page thing in the Marvel 1000 maybe, but like he mostly just does covers. Yeah. Like he well, hasn't done like stories in forever. You could just tell how much that the story of this man, this monster and the Jack Kirby era FF meant to him that comes through in this book. And um, it was moving. It was moving and it was happy and it was joyful and just i mean just absolutely beautiful like he definitely was able to capture the same thrill of going through like fantastical space settings that you get when you look at like jack kirby stuff 
So I, I was impressed. I was impressed with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I did. I was a little bit like kind of. It's a shame that so many of these extremely talented comic book writers and artists just want to like do tributes to the mm-hmm. stuff they loved before. Um, you know, I, I hunger for that new stuff. But then I thought, well, he he did Astro City. Like Astro City is original stuff, although although it in a way is also kind of yeah throwback and analogy. There's also something that no matter how good, even the best outside of that era was, even as good as like Watchmen or. Batman Year One or Immortal Hulk recently, none of them are quite as magical and as explosive as yeah. those like first couple Marvel years. Yeah, that's true. It, it's, it's, it's true, and I, I get, and I I love this book, so I I don't even know what I'm it, complaining about. In a way that doesn't feel as true of other mediums, right? Like it's you wouldn't say like um nothing's as magical as when movies first started having sound. Right, um, right. There's like certainly peaks and valleys in movies or television. And certain genres peaked, right? Like the Western yes. has pretty much never been as great as it was when it was at its peak with some exceptions. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, for sure. Like you're going to do a Western, you're probably like thinking about like Clint Eastwood and, and, and the spaghetti Western era. Yeah. Or maybe you're doing a throwback to like a John Wayne era kind of yeah. thing. But you are doing a throwback of some kind if you do. And, he, and even anyone who does like noir films, like they're all – feel like they're reaching back to like double indemnity or something like that more than trying to reinvent it though you know there are good ones yes that is true for genres but it's something weird about comic book, i guess superhero comic books is where it is so this is what i'm talking about like the magic maybe is unrecreatable that was happening in that era yeah um, without it like dying out and coming back right right um so i i read that and that's just what i wanted to say um, okay. should we should we start doing some John Byrne issues? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, so we're gonna start with issue two forty four. Yeah, and in the previous issue, we had uh, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four had fought Galactus, who was trying to eat Earth again. That that scamp, uh, <laughs> and they had defeated him, and uh, he was dying. And Reed and Captain America had agreed that Galactus must be saved. Yeah. Um, so th- this is a big issue. I re- I remember this issue. I I didn't mm-hmm. read it when it came out, but I bought it in back issues, and it definitely stood out to me as like one of the big things in in the uh, John Byrne run. Uh, should we just say what happens in this? And uh... sure, this issue is mostly about Juliet D'Angelo, um, <laughs> who is sort of an actress in Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. Is that where she lives, or no, like Lower East Side? I think. Yeah, it's uh, sort of a character study on her. It's a deep, really in depth and nuanced study of Julie Angel. Uh, no, uh, she's in it, but uh, it opens with her. But uh, it is about uh, saving Galactus. It's about saving Galactus. Um, and first of all, it's just weird that you want to save the guy whose whole mm-hmm. deal is eating planets and is has tried and is currently trying to eat Earth. Um, th- but they make the argument, which I guess was established before John Byrne, but that like Galactus must be saved because he he's like a hurricane. He's just a force of nature mm-hmm. that is somehow part of the web of the universe, and if to destroy him would be to upset the balance of the universe somehow. Yeah, it's like if you get rid of all the wolves, then there's too many deer or whatever. Uh, he, he exists for a purpose. So even though they don't quite understand how it fits in, they're dedicated to saving him. And we go through some fun Reed Richards gizmo stuff. We got some good machines. 
Oh, I should also say, I even like the way, let's go back to what you were saying with the Julie Angel part. Like it opens on Julie Angel. Um, it kind of, it kind of starts at the end and then we go back, right? Like, yeah, it starts, it's a really cool way it's told. Like it starts with Julie just sort of in her apartment. She lives with Frankie Ray, Johnny Storm's girlfriend. And there's a knock at the door and she opens it. And uh, it's Johnny Storm who looks a, like a wreck. He looks almost like withered away, but he's not. He's just exhausted and his uniform's untucked and he collapses in her arms. Um, and she sort of tends. You don't to know him. what's going on. Yeah, and it's after the action of this story, mm-hmm. and then she calls Reed and Sue. They come over to make sure that Johnny's all right. He is basically all right. He's just emotionally wrecked. Julie wants to know what's going on, and Reed's like, "Ah, oh, yes, you're Frankie Ray's roommate, so you do deserve to know." And then it's kind of like prepare for a story that is incredible, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty great beginning. It's a, it actually really reminds me of a Sherlock Holmes story. You know, where like somebody comes into the living room, they're like, I will tell you the tale, but I must warn you, it is unbelievable. (laughs) As good as the issues were before this, and like we had the tiny town and ego, which were some great issues. It does feel like John Byrne has really got his sea legs under him even more now. Like this is sort of like, especially after the last couple issues, it is a fun way to start this issue, both from like a monthly standpoint. Like if you were waiting for the next issue and it started like this. That's an exciting yeah. way to start this issue. I think it also reads well when like you're binging and reading through a trade, a thing that did not exist at that time. Yeah. Just like the pacing, uh, it kind of resets the pacing a little bit and ups the uh, anxiety for something uh, and, even more than it already was. I don't I, like he kind of effortlessly um, is keeping it exciting. He's just good at telling stories. Like he's just good at opening with something exciting and then following through on that promise and then buttoning it up neatly. Um, it's one of those things that when it's done well, it looks easy, but not a lot of people were doing it so consistently uh, good uh, as well as John was. Because, um, you know, John John's art, just his draftsmanship in and of itself, I think is sort of unremarkable. Like I don't know if like a pinup by John Byrne is like as spectacular as as like say an Arthur Adams pinup or like yeah um, I, th- I think that is true but there is something it's very distinctive it's distinctive and also like there's a reason like his art for a lot of these characters I think for a while was sort of like the standard bearer there is yeah. something Ramita senior ish about it where it's just like oh, it just feels clean and perfect and almost like oh this is how Captain America was meant to look when John Byrne draws him I know what you mean it's iconic. Um, but what it, makes in it a way John when Burns... like when like Arthur Adams does it or Walt Simonson, it just feels like oh, this is a really cool drawing, but it doesn't quite feel like this is what they're meant to look like uh, unless Walt Simonson is drawing them. Uh, that that's true. Um, there's something sort of it's like Burns establishing a house style. But what is distinctive about him though is I think just the storytelling confidence. Mm-hmm. You're in the hands of somebody who has a story to tell you. He's thought it through, and he and he, and he's and you're along for the ride. Um, and, okay, so, and and we and as we've talked about, I think he choreographs incredibly well. Uh, like a lot of the great artists of this time, he also draw leads your eye along the page perfectly well. I think a lot of them did that. There was a lot of students of Kirby in a way that were really good at just guiding your eye. But his choreographing was great, and his character designs and character emotion and acting were all great too. Like he is like he's a great director of comic book pages. Yeah, he's a good cinematographer and screenwriter. Um. So Reed is going to tell Julie Angel what's happened to her roommate, Frankie Ray. And then we cut back to the end of the last issue. 
Galactus is dying. It's revealed that he's shrinking in size. I remember kind of finding that interesting. Yeah. Um, that like as he is gets close to death, he's just somehow shorter. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of interesting, although he's still a giant. There's um, some uh, 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 kind of old school Marvelness here where we have like a little recap of the previous issue, even though it's only been one month. And then like Iron Man is sent to get some equipment from Tony Stark because it's still the era of like secret identities. But Iron Man has to think to himself that he is Tony Stark to like let the reader know in case for some reason the reader doesn't know. Yeah, like Iron Man is picking up some stuff from Stark Industries and there's a guy. And by the way, it looks like Tony Stark is employing some elderly <laughs> sort of mom and pop repair shop style employees who are working for the biggest tech firm on the planet Earth. Mm -hmm. But uh, as Iron Man's picking up the stuff, Iron Man, you know, the 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 supply guy is saying, uh, I guess it's OK, seen as how this order is signed by Mr. Stark himself. And then Iron Man's thinking, naturally, I had no difficulty gaining permission from my, quote, boss, since I am Tony Stark. Yeah, that's that's very of its time. Yeah, like now they just assume, you know, those things. And also everybody knows who Tony Stark and Iron Man are, that they're the same person. So like secret identities are kind of gone, but also like reminding you of some things. I think now Marvel sometimes just takes it for granted that, you know, some of this stuff. Um, so Iron Man brings, I guess, a ready-made Galactus healing stuff that he just had in the warehouse that Reed yeah, like, it's, it seems up. like Reed put it together, but he had all the pieces. It looks like he had like an IKEA set version of mm -hmm. heal your own Galactus like uh, machine. It's a very fun image of them putting it together, like Reed stretching all around, Johnny spot welding, thing lifting things, Thor sticking his hammer in to charge it up. It's all like yeah, Reed's going to use the power of Thor's mighty Uru hammer to get energy into Galactus to save him. Mm -hmm. uh, but Galactus is so hungry for energy that once they activate it, it almost threatens to kill Thor. And Captain America has to use his trusty shield to knock the machine off balance so that Thor can break free. And so he has something to do. Yeah, so he's just not standing there. So that gives Galactus revived again. Um, he... You know, Reed's like, please, I'm going to find a planet besides Earth for you to eat. He goes into the Baxter building and looks up on his computer. There's a fun shot of Reed at a computer and Galactus is like looking in from a big hole yeah. on the roof above, just over Reed's shoulder at a screen. Yeah. Um, and Galactus says, hey, I don't mind leaving Earth B if I can feed these other planets, but I'm not strong enough to get there. What's your solution? And Kevin, Frankie Ray has a solution. Yeah. And her solution is uh, 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 some Twinkies and cupcakes. No, no. It is no, one of those no. hostess ads. This whole issue has been secretly a hostess ad. No, Kevin. No. That's, no I just assumed I knew where I was going and stopped reading at this point. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Do I have to do all the comic book reading in this partnership? Yes. Um, okay. Uh, no, Frankie Ray volunteers to be his herald, his silver surfer, basically. His Terex the Untamed. Yeah, and like, I don't quite know how that helps him get to the planet, but I guess somehow having a Herald makes him stronger in some sort of, we don't need to I guess to it helps him it get way. there easier. Like she She's just like go. a GPS or something like that? Yeah, I think it's like, because uh, when he says he's found some planets, uh, six possible worlds. Uh, and so I think Frankie Ray can fly ahead, make sure they're definite, because he could basically get to one, and if it's wrong, he's going to die. Okay. I don't understand... Why he couldn't just eat whatever it is, but. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, okay, so Frankie's going to go scout these planets, and once she's found a good meaty one, Galactus is going to show up. Yeah. Uh, it's and- also interesting. Reed's like, you might have to feed him planets with living life forms, sentient life. You know, that's a thing that might happen. And she's like, I'm cool with it. The exact phrase she says is, so a few less bug-eyed monsters, what's that compared to being able to my being able to go out there? So yeah. her wanderlust is more powerful than her empathy for alien races. Yeah, that's cool of her. Um, I mean, Johnny's brokenhearted, but I'm like, Johnny, that's a red flag. Yeah, yeah. When you're dating someone who sort of doesn't mind in not even genocide, sp- uh, planet side, I don't know, entire every every species on one planet, um, an extinction event, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's that's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So, um, not as bad as some of the people you've dated. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, boy. <laughs> so many of my exes. Eight planets. <laughs> um, yeah. So he turns her into a herald, gives her sort of a redesign, which is cool looking, though I think her normal look was a little cooler, but uh, she still looks cool. I think so, too. But it is fun that he comes up with two cool character designs, the pre-cosmic power and the post-cosmic mm-hmm. power. Yeah. And then she flies into space. Johnny chases after her. Um, and, but can't follow her because it's space. Yeah, now she has power cosmic, so she can go into space. And she's just like instantly over her existence as Frankie Ray and psyched to be Galactus's number two. Yeah. Um, it's also, it is interesting. Um, I mean, Johnny's dated a lot of people in between Crystal and Frankie Ray, but this is, I think, John Byrne doing his Crystal of the Inhuman story. Yes, I agree. Like he, he's definitely following the Jack Kirby, Stan Lee template, and it, there is something fun about like Johnny keeps dating these like exotic women who are from other worlds and realms, and it's not working out because like they're not meant to be on Earth with him. Yeah, their their loyalty is to wherever they're sort of from. Uh, there's another quote in here that I really like. After Frankie Ray flies off, and Galactus then like matter transport to wherever she is, Reed says it's over. Galactus will not trouble us again. Perhaps his humanity is not so lost as he might think if he can still be touched by simple human compassion. And Ben Ben Grimm goes, I think I'm impressed. That's a funny line, yeah. That's a pretty classic thing line right there. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then we cut back to the present and Johnny is heartbroken on Frankie Ray's couch and she's left to contemplate that her roommate is now in space. Yeah. Uh, Reed bides the Baxter building off of... Uh... I don't know, like a classic Mr. Moneybags looking mayor character. <laughs> yeah, it's fun um, to think that they have landlords and now they don't have to worry about their landlords. And then Reed makes arrangements to drop off the a frozen doom body they've had <laughs> since the anniversary issue with the Latvian embassy uh, and where there's a doom waiting to get it back. Uh, and um, then we have our second prologue, which leads right into the next issue uh, where uh, – Ben Grimm and Herbie are babysitting Franklin while Sue goes to do an interview. And uh, Franklin uses his burgeoning unlimited powers to solve a Rubik's Cube and then melts Herbie. Herbie explodes because Herbie is monitoring the levels of his mutant powers and they suddenly go off the charts. Yeah. And that explodes Herbie. Yeah. Um, and then we go into uh, the next issue. Yes. So this is 245, childhood, childhood's end. Um, Kevin's- There's something 
the 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 next issue uh, says next issue perhaps the most heartrending FFF saga ever. It's a bold statement to make. Um, it makes it like when Stan used to do those things. I'm like, well, you don't know. You're just using hyperbole. Yeah, Stan would all say that time. about anything, you know. Um, but it feels like you're not going to do it as often at this era, and uh, uh, and it is. But he is right. And I wonder if that was him or Shooter, or if he just knew he had a good one. Um, he lived up to it. What can we say? Like he yeah. he crushes. Um. The cover is the Invisible Girl. Uh, she'll soon be rechristened Invisible Woman, but she's still the Invisible Girl at this point. Kind of in tatters, mid-battle, looking up, uh, maybe pleading, maybe who knows what. And the caption is, the Invisible Girl fights alone for the life of her son. Uh, this yeah. issue is great. I mean, just uh, just just front to back, it's incredible. Uh, it's so fun. It's a, it's a must-read. Yeah, it is my... Very favorite of this run. It maybe is my favorite post Kirby Fantastic Four issue. It's a definitely a contender for that. Um, and it might be one of my it might be my favorite Fantastic Four issue. Period. But that seems crazy with this man, this monster, and some of those Galactus issues. But uh, but um, it, it just it really is great. So basically, what happens is without giving the big spoiler away, uh, Sue Richards is on a talk show. Um, and there is a crisis at the Baxter building where a mysterious man in tatters has subdued Ben and Johnny. Franklin's and nowhere Reed. to be found and Reed and uh, Sue alone has to uh, battle him. Yeah, this guy who's taken down the entire Fantastic Four team pretty easily. Uh, and uh, and also like this interview is basically about how Sue is sort of a. The weakest member of the team. Yeah, this this is what really adds a lot. It opens up with this sort of Barbara Walters analog interviewing Sue, and the Barbara Walters analog is saying all of the things that a fan might say about Sue Richards in the Kirby era of Fantastic Four, like all of the criticisms you might say that we probably said mm -hmm. when we were going over the issues. Um, you know, it's like, oh, so you're subservient to your husband. You know, all you are is a wife. Uh, you know, you're like. You're just a hostage. You know, you don't, you're yeah. not as powerful as the others. Like this woman, the interviewer just comes out and says all this. Yeah. And Sue uh, handles it very well. Um, you know, she doesn't give up on any of those things. Uh, she doesn't get mad. She doesn't take the bait and get angry. Um, sort of debates them, but it definitely is all out there. Like this sort of like everyone thinks this about you. And she's like, well, who cares what you think? Uh, I think I, I think I am a meaningful part of this team. Yeah, so it's it's pretty elegant. We get this sort of case laid out for her being a lesser character of the team. Sue, first of all, just defends herself graciously. She's basically the Jackie Kennedy of the Marvel Universe. So she's like well-versed in being interviewed and speaking publicly, right? Like it'd be hard to rattle Sue, you imagine. Yeah, and that's a, in a way a cool superpower, right? Like, Yeah, just diplomacy. Yeah. But um, also then the story that we're about to see also shows that Sue is different than how she was portrayed in those 60 stories. Like she's a badass. That's right. Super powered person and interesting character. During the interview, some of the crew sees these FF signal flare go off and they choose not to tell Sue because they're scared of their boss. That's really funny. I think I, I kind of like that touch. I like that, but it also is nice because it sets up this thing. So the, this battle has already happened off screen that Sue's going to walk into. 
Yeah, you know, the other funny thing is, though, after the interview, Sue's hailing a cab, and so she doesn't know about the battle until she gets home, which means the interview finished, and they still didn't tell her. They yeah. were just like, okay, see you later. <laughs> like, they wouldn't, yeah. they couldn't just pretend to see the signal flare then, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, she takes a cab. She should have taken a fantastic car, but she takes a cab. She gets back, and she notices, like, oh, the lights are kind of out in the top of the building. That's strange. And then, like, the FF elevator doesn't work, and she thinks that's strange. She knows something's up there. She gets a fun use of her powers where she uses her force shield to make, like, a like to raise herself up on a huge column to go outside of the building to enter their headquarters. Which is terrifying to imagine. Yeah, just how like, high you are up. And what about the winds? You think you get blown right off that thing. She ain't scared. Nope. So she goes to the Baxter building and she sees Reed totally knocked unconscious. She sees Ben totally knocked unconscious. She turns invisible and she sees the the nameless villain of our issue who is this um, tall, shirtless, muscular, blonde dude with a big, long beard who's yeah. strangling the human torch. Now, when you were reading this issue, Will, I saw you say hubba, hubba, hubba. He, hey, he's a good looking dude. <laughs> he's a good looking dude. <laughs> I'll say that he's as handsome as Sue is pretty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he is like strangling Johnny and, he, and he's saying, why do you persist in prolonging, prolonging your agony? I sent you of the answer I seek. Do not force me to empty your mind as I did the others. And Johnny's response is, I choke. Don't have your answer. I don't even know the question. Which is what a cool in like a moment to come into in the middle of this battle. Like. He's finishing Johnny up for not answering a, answering a question. And Johnny's like, you haven't asked me anything. This it's is very, confusing. I agree. It's very Star Trek, right? Like the threatening force, It's it's got a debate they want to have. Like it, mm-hmm. like the threat is centered around a discussion. Um, uh, Sue there is watching in her invisible form. And as she's observing this, yet she senses an alien quality to the voice, a great sadness, a longing that brings her heart to her throat. Mm-hmm. Uh, very foreshadowing what we're going to learn about this guy not not too long. Yeah. He senses her. Her invisibility is no use. He can sense her anyway. It is you, the fourth member, the female. The answer lies within you. I sense it. And he starts chasing her. And his basically, he seems to be able to do anything. He could, like, zap Johnny's mind, lifted him up with strength. Uh, as Sue, like, runs away, he just walks through the door. Like, he matter, he, like, changes the matter of the door so that it's gone. Yeah, and as he's chasing Sue, she thinks, whatever else I may have said to Barbara Walker, not to be confused with Barbara Walters, uh, I do have a limit to my powers. And against someone who could so easily defeat the others, dot, dot, dot. Like, she's like, she thinks to herself, like, well, I was sort of saying I'm tough, but like, this guy easily wiped out the rest of the team. I am no content. I am not going to be able to handle him. So the first thing she does is she kind of hides around a corner, throws a coat on him, which is like kind of funny and also smart, right? Like she's, yeah. and it and it does surprise him. Yeah, but then he turns it into clothing. <laughs> so then she puts up an invisible force shield to stop his approach, which does block him for a moment. It confuses him, and he has to figure it out before he zaps her mind with a psychic blast, and she has to let go of the shield. Yeah, she, like, pelts him with, like, little force field balls. Like, basically, as long as she keeps changing up her attack, it does slow him down. He's never ready for something she hasn't tried before, but nothing seems to be able to work twice. And that is also very Jack Kirby, where we see her using her powers in creative ways. That's like something you'd see a lot in those early Jack Kirby issues. And a little uh, Ditko. I mean, um, we, Ditko sort of wrote this issue in a way. I would way. say Ditko deserves most of the credit for the Fantastic Four and John Byrne. Now, 
she's also having to do like detective work while she's on the run. Like she sees Ben's apartment exploded. It's also fun that they each have apartments in the complex. Yeah. Um, and so she sees that Herbie exploded. There's no sign of Franklin. So she can kind of determine things started here. Yeah. Something happened to Franklin and she doesn't know. And now it become more concerning, right? If she doesn't figure this out, Franklin may be in danger. Uh, meanwhile, as she's investigating, there's a tap of her shoulder, which is from this dude. And instinctually, she turns his hand invisible, which confuses him. Yep. Again, like it's not a powerful move, but everything is sort of confusing this guy. He's he's easily confused. It's more like just the creative, clever switching tactics uh, mm-hmm. that we get right, right here in this sequence. Meanwhile, Barbara Walker uh, and her crew are editing the segment we just watched, and they notice on the news that there's a fight at the Baxter building, and they jump into their news van because they want to scoop it. And evil Barbara Walker wants to, you know, hopefully showcase that Sue is outmatched. Yeah. Uh, and they get there, and as they get there, now we've missed some of what's happening inside. It's again, Burns doing a great job of like hiding really fun moments because it's almost more fun not to see them. And when they arrive there, there's an explosion, and Sue comes hurtling out of the building in like a force field bubble and falling to her death, and has to catch herself in like a force field, uh, not trampoline, but like airbag. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, it. Um, the force field is maybe the most powerful single ability on the team. It's just not used that well usually, and Byrne uses it great with Sue. Yeah, and she's like, everyone, get out of here. This guy is going to kill us all. Um, and then the villain from up above says, let them all be still, which freezes everybody. And then he floats down effortlessly and he approaches Sue and he's kind of saying the same thing of what he said to the torch. There's still so much I do not understand. Yeah. You must tell me what I want to know. Tell me why my mind is so barren, so empty of experience. I, I sense it should not be so. And this is the big reveal coming up. And I just, I love it, Kevin. It's so good. Um, so he says to her, you must tell me what I want to know. Tell me why my mind is so barren, so empty of experience. I sense it should not be so. I sense my mind should be filled with thought and memory. Tell me who I am. I mean, I think at this point you can start to guess, and but it's that kind of satisfying you're finding out, you're you're starting to realize it just as it's being revealed, which is really fun. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised like if most people reading these issues back to back figured out very quickly. I didn't. I wasn't thinking. I don't think I did either. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it in that sense when I read it the first time. Uh, I wasn't thinking about this. I mean, the Fantastic Four have like weird characters show up all the time. Yeah, and often it's like, oh, you're an infant baby from an alien race and you just need an ice cream cone. Or, you yeah. know, you're just like our old friend who's been doused with, you know, some, you know, name your made up radiation type. And Byrne's been doing all issues like that. He had the armored guy with nobody inside and the weird vertigo lady. So, yeah, in a way, if you're reading all these in a row, you're kind of you're not you're not trying to crack it like a whodunit. Yeah. So this guy goes, tell me who I am. And Sue goes, but I can't. I don't. I don't. Which is like what the torch was saying. And then she goes, oh, oh, no. A close up on her eyes. I think we don't need these captions, but realization blooms like a dark rose in Susan's mind. Suddenly she knows why the tall man has seemed so hauntingly familiar. It is Reed Richards she sees behind the golden beard. And the voice, though altered, is, and then she says, Franklin. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is – of the era, captions were uh, – and dialogue was more prevalent. Like nowadays, I feel like you're right. Those captions probably wouldn't be there today. Or they'd be but at this time, smaller. it would be weird not to have them. Uh, you're, you're, you're correct. Um, 
I guess I'm just so moved. I'm, you know, I've been re- the Frank Miller Daredevil captions are so terse and electric that I want everything to be like that. But I don't know why I'm complaining because the story's great. So it's Franklin, and so it's his mother who recognized him when the other three didn't. And hearing the name, she collapses because she's collapses, right. Yeah. He collapses uh, because she's right. And he says, mommy, mommy, what's happening? What's happened to me, mommy? And it's so sweet. Yeah, it, it's interesting like because he kind of switches from this adult voice. He goes, Franklin, yes, I am Franklin, Benjamin Richards, but I'm incomplete. I'm not whole. Why am I so empty? Where is my life? She says, don't be afraid, Franklin. I'm here. Mommy's here, she says to this like grown adult man. And once she yeah. says, mommy, he goes, mommy. Mommy, what happened to me, mommy? Because oh, the voice is suddenly that of a little boy lost. It's very like she's bringing out the child in him. I don't think you would get this, but when a kid needs a parent's help, it's very moving. I mean, I have I have a child anyway. Um, and it's it's sweet and it's a it's a really satisfying reveal. And then and then grown up Franklin tells Sue what happened, which is that as he was manipulating the Rubik's Cube, the television had a character saying, when are you going to grow up? Which was an and, advertisement of the time. Okay. It was like okay. a pretty all on the, I was on the air a lot. When are you going to grow up? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's presented as an episode of Leave it to Beaver in the previous issue. Um, I believe it was like a thing that you would hear sometimes. It's, it sounds like a real commercial. So and it, since I get every fact wrong about TVs and movies, I'm, I'm, I could be wrong, too. I'm not going to contradict it. But that somehow you Franklin using his growing mutant powers turned himself into an adult but it, oh, maybe i'm a, thinking of the toys r us i don't want to grow up oh yeah okay um well now that we know that he's susceptible to commercials we're lucky that this is what was playing and it wasn't something like yeah you know um where's the beef you know he'd be trapped inside a hamburger <laughs> yeah so uh so yeah when are you going to grow up causes him just to grow up and, and unleashes full powers. The rest of the FF have recovered and they come outside and they're like, Sue, get back. He's going to hurt you. Uh, and then she's like, Reed, it's Franklin. And immediately Frank uh, Reed knows he's right. Takes dad's a moment longer. And um, it's dad shaming really is what that is. But yeah, the dads are dumb. Dads are always dumb in fiction. Moms are good and dads are dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that they realize what's going on, they can like they can calm down and figure it out. And then Reed and Franklin work together to figure out how to solve it. Yeah. And uh, along like, the way, Franklin offers to heal the thing. Yeah. Uh, basically, Franklin realizes, well, if I turn back into a kid, this stuff's going to keep happening. So I'm going to put up like a barrier to lock my powers away temporarily. That will only right. let my powers out when I'm old enough to control them. Yeah, so we don't have because he's powerful enough now to do that to himself. Yeah, so he's basically locking himself out of his own abilities temporarily. But before he does it, he says, "Ben, do you want me to Uncle Benji, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben? Do you want? Oh, there's an Uncle Ben. That's two Uncle Bens in the Marvel universe. You're just now realizing that. Yep. Oh boy. Uh, and uh, offers to cure him, and things kind of hesitant. And Franklin inspects his mind, and then. Realizes something, looks at his dad for the okay, Reed gives the nod, and then Franklin turns himself back into a baby. And while he's doing it, he turns Ben back into his the rocky form of the thing. Yeah, the, the classic Joe Sinnott version. Uh, and it basically confirms what Reed's theory was that the thing stopping 
Ben from turning back to human is that he's afraid that Alicia won't love him anymore. Even though he logically knows that's not true, a tiny part of him is too afraid and it won't let him turn human again. And now Reed knows that for sure. They don't tell Ben that because they think it'd be too hard for him to hear. Yeah, and um, and it's although I think we have said that kind of thing in earlier issues of FF, but this is like it's confirmed now, hardcore, clearly, and sort of made part of the canon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that's the issue. And what a what a great one. Even turning thing back into a rocky form is a nice, fun resolution to this. Um, it 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 makes this issue that is great anyway have sort of almost like effect an effect on this comic as well in a way that beyond just like this cool thing that happens like it's tying up this franklin superpower subplot yeah but i like tying the things aspect into it i don't know it's it really is a pretty wonderfully crafted comic from beginning to end it feels really good to read and i mean (laughs) not it doesn't feel good to read richards it feels good for a human fan to absorb the comic and I even love that it says next issue, too many dooms. Even just like <laughs> that title is such a silly kind of yeah. punctuation mark on this experience to know that that's coming. Um, it's definitely this is definitely my pick for one of the all time great John Byrne issues of anything he's done, and certainly of FF. It's one of my all time favorite '80s Marvel, like you say, and it's one of my all time favorite Marvel comics. And I put it right up there with this man, this monster, or Master Planner, and just or Craven's Last Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're not Spider-Man, like if you're not reading along with us and you have Marvel Unlimited, I would recommend reading this issue at least, even if you're not reading all the other ones we're covering. Yeah. I would go read this one off Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, two forty-five. It's worth it. And and, and if that's all you're going to read, it'll give you a good example of what John Byrne was really good at in in this run. Yeah. Um. Uh, okay. Real quick, you want to do too many dooms? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Do you think? Uh-huh. Are you are you legitimately asking me that? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like we should do this one a little quicker. I think we took a while on these. We first took two. a while. I think we should burn through this, and this is, this is a little bit more of a burn through it. Nice one, Will. <laughs> um, the the basic overall thing is we left Doctor Doom. Thing. Was... Nice one, Will. Look, let me just get through this, okay? Now, this is a fantastic story. So... Oh, fantastic! Nice what? one, Will. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, oh boy. Uh, now this is a real girl of a tale. <laughs> uh, okay, let that one lie. <laughs> so, when we left Doctor Doom, he was trapped inside a robot body in the miniature town that he created with the Puppet Master. That's right. And so, this issue is how Doom escapes from that and gets back into his regular self. Yes. Um, and it basically involves uh, trapping. Bots. Yeah, he basically uses all of his Doom bots to get the Fantastic Four to bring his little robot body with his mind in it to Latveria. And then his robots keep the FF busy while another robot, Doom, takes the little mini Doom and puts the brain back into actual Doom body. Yeah. Right? That's what happens. And there's like fighting between the FF and the Doom bots. And mm-hmm. and it's it's a good issue, right? It's fun. It's like a it's really satisfying read. Uh, it opens with a classic Kirby-ish splash page with like thing and some weird device. <laughs> That makes no sense. Uh, and it's Reed's basically pretending to try to cure the thing, even though he knows that nothing can cure him now. Um, yeah, then we cut to the Puppet Master torturing Mini Doom in the tiny town. Puppet Master is mad at him because it ruined yeah. his perfect fake life. 
But Doom reveals he's now gotten gotten out and gotten his control into a Doom bot. Which is not true. That's just an actual Doom bot above him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, his his AI ability and the Doom bots are so good. Like, they're as good as Doom, right? Like, they're yeah. just... A, anyway, I'm sure it's been said by everybody. Then the FF are showing up with little mini Doom bot. No, not mini no, Doom with, bot. with the frozen Doom body. With the they have the doom. real Doom body. They have that's what it real is. Body. They don't have the mind. They have just the real Doom body. Yes. So Latveria's ambassador says, "Hey, out of respect to us as a nation, will you bring the body of our ruler?" And Reese agrees. Yeah, but when they show up, they're all trapped in separate cells. It's one of these classic all... like four different traps for the FF, and once they get united, they're super strong again. Yeah, they're all attacked by four different Dooms. Uh, it's very fun. Uh, they all sort of simultaneously realize they're fighting robots. And that helps them escape past the dooms they're fighting. You know, and so uh, that, then by the time they're out, Doom has gotten himself his mind back into his frozen body and defrosted his body or whatever. And so the FF are confronting him, and Doom says, "I need your help to reclaim my country of Latveria, and you're going to help me because without me, the country sucks." And he shows them that the country's in ruins and that they should help him get back into power. Yeah, and this is sort of a burn revelation. I think it comes from burn that some creators don't love as much that like Latveria is better with Doom in charge. It's sort of a weird – like he's a good leader other than wanting to take over the world. And some people play it as like, no, he's a tyrant and it's horrible to live there. And some people play it as like, oh, it is okay. It is They're trapped and caught, but it's otherwise okay. Yes, that he's some kind of efficient administrator. He just demands mm-hmm. absolute control. Um, so as long as he has power, he kind of within boundaries lets his people have good lives, but they can't say anything against him. They're scared yeah. to speak against him. Um, and so, yeah, just like different different writers have played that to different degrees. How good yeah. is he as a ruler versus how much of a tyrant is he? Uh, I remember the next issue being good. I don't remember it. Distinctly, but I remember that the next issue being good. So I'm curious. I'm excited to reread that when we get. Me to too. It. I mean, we're we're in we're in it now. Like we are yeah. in the hot phase of John Burns stories. Uh, and even this issue, which we kind of breeze through, it's it's especially after the last one. It's lighter affair, but there is fun stuff. Oh yeah. With Sue using her force field to sort of explode Doom's robot from the inside, and Johnny is covered like in faint flame retardant foam, but he realizes it's on his clothing, so he just removes his glove, which is like a very simple, smart. A way to get out of that trap. And it's just told in that nice John Byrne snappy action packed style. Like it's mm-hmm. just easy to read. It's fun. I mean, this is just like a well done comic. I mean, it's just what you get with John Byrne in the 80s. Like it's just mm-hmm. a it's a fun read. Good. I like it. Read again. Nice. Oh, boy. And um, yeah, I remember the next issue, which we'll do next time we do Cosmic Rays and Correspondence. Uh, really good too. 247. Anyway. Yeah. That, that's our John Byrne coverage, Kev. Yeah. You want to take a break and answer a few correspondences, or do you got to go? Let's do it. Let's do some correspondences. And we are back into the correspondence section of our Cosmic Rays and Correspondence. Um, while my brother is digging up the emails, I'll just tell you listeners, if you want to email us, our email address is screwitcomics at gmail. You can also follow us on Instagram, Screw It Comics. Anybody who's participating in the Screw It Insta Push knows that. And we also have a Twitter, Screw It Comics. 
And uh, we'd love an email from you guys. We love email. Any thoughts you have at all on the Fantastic Four or whatever comics you're reading, Marvel, DC, Indie, any thoughts you have on Ewan McGregor's film career, um, uh, we'd love to hear it. If you have rebuttals to Chris Gethard's defense of Squadron Supreme that we read last episode, uh, let us know. Although be careful about poking that bear because we might get another (laughs) 10-page email from him saying (laughs) how great Squadron Supreme is. what do we got, Kev? Uh, first, I just want to mention we got this tweet from Keith Moser. He's the one who pointed out on the latest Screw It comics, Will Hines confuses Ewan McGregor for Cillian Murphy, and Kev Hines didn't even notice. Where's my no prize? Well, you're supposed to correct it, but I'll give you a half a no prize. And wow. the other half, you, you've I'm given no prizes to people who've just emailed us in the past. I know. I'm getting stingy. I've devalued. I, I got a, mm-hmm. the no prize economic council told me I'm devaluing the no prize. And so I have to be a little stingier about it, but I'll give him half a no prize here. I'm going to rip a no prize in half and I'm sending half to Keith Moser. Mm-hmm. And if somebody can explain why Kevin just let this blatant fact go by, <laughs> he'll get the other, I'll send the other half of the no prize to them. I'm sending Keith two no prizes, one for this and one <laughs> because you wouldn't give him one. After giving them to other people for far less, <laughs> far, far, far less. Well, Most people ask for no prizes. You give them one before they've even finished asking. <laughs> Kevin, you just got a no prize. <laughs> well, then why not Keith? Um, we got an email from uh, Sean, uh, and he specifically asks me not to read all of it. So I'm going to skim it a little bit. Um, uh, uh he talks about his kind of coming up and uh, not reading a ton of comics. And he kind of came up on the X-Men cartoon, but he has started reading more and more comics. Uh, and then I'm going to read this part verbatim. Uh, I have not been able to st- – uh, 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 wait. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I have not been able to stop reading FF. And he talks about starting to read FF because of our podcast. I read everything in Slot's current run and love that. And I'm turning through the burn era at a pace that makes me a little sad because I'm not going to remember things as you two get to them. Uh, I have a couple of questions that I could Google, but it is far more entertaining to get potentially wrong information weeks after it is asked. (laughs) Sean understands this podcast. Yeah. Uh, My first is related to FF number 53. Uh, This is a Stan Lee issue, Will. They credit the native dances to some ballet, but I believe it is Ballet Forbush. Forbush, Forbush, sorry, or something akin to that. And I know that you have mentioned Forbush as a comedic character or an Alfred E. Newman-esque person. So was this some joke and a way to cover Jack just making up positions for people to be in dancing? Or was that just a coincidence and Jack did, in fact, use them as a reference? I have no idea. Kevin, do you do It's you just know? a joke. I mean, it's just a joke. It's Stan Lee loves the name Forbush. It's a name he used throughout comics. Uh, and it eventually became Forbush Man. And I, I think it just tickled him and it became a running gag. He like, It was a joke he forced and eventually we accepted as funny. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um, all right, there you go. There's the answer. That's not even inaccurate. I'm looking here at the wiki page for Forbush Man and Kevin's exactly right. Uh, my second question relates to Batman Year One, which I love. But as a person born in and raised near Philadelphia, uh, uh, uh uh, this the 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 movie bombing has always uh, oh, I can't quite uh, I'm I'm lost with this sentence, but uh, this has always been that this is a horror story that I grew up with. I wasn't born at the time, so uh, oh, he's talking about a, uh, the bombing um, in Philadelphia, I think. Okay, I wasn't born at the time, so I was unaware of how large the story was outside of the Philadelphia 
region. So I guess my first question is, was that was that a major news story nationally at the time? And when year one was coming out, was it obvious that the police bombing was meant to be a reference to the move bombing? Or is that simply a layer of subtext I've added? I think that's just something you added, Sean. I definitely wasn't thinking of that uh, when yeah. I read uh, year one. Um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't part of the inspiration of Frank writing that story. Um, but I don't think it's presented in a way that you're supposed to think of that. Uh, and then Sean basically goes on to compliment Will's work on Gethard's box show that he used to do uh, maybe like a year ago now. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about he would listen to us doing a screw it. We're going to talk about the UCB podcast. <laughs> uh, and he also talks about enjoying the George Lucas show that our friend Connor Ratliff yeah. uh, runs. And he also talks about a, a Twitter thread I did about buying some Magic the Gathering cards, <laughs> um, which I had done recently, but still haven't <laughs> opened or used. <laughs> um, uh, so thanks, Sean. Uh, it's a really great email, and I'm sorry for skimming so much of it, but we talked about that, and, and he wants me to do that. So okay. thank uh, you, Sean. let's read a few more. We have this one from Corey Mintz. Uh, in the subject is which in which I answer your questions. Okay. Hey, Milksops, I too wondered where those random villains were teleported to in Squadron Supreme number six. These are the villains that left Master yeah. Menace. And went to yeah. another universe. He goes, they appeared in a guest appearance in Captain America 314. <laughs> Keep up the great work. So Mark Grunewald sent them to another one of his comics. Okay, I see. And I think, again, something that's just needlessly complicated. Yeah. Chris Gethard's favorite comic of all time. <laughs> uh, uh, we have an email from Anthony. Uh, and, it, and the subject is an ending that made a bad book good. And then, okay, he's, yeah. then the first sentence is, well, kind of. So he's already <laughs> backing off his subject's promise. Yeah. Uh, per your request, Heinz Brothers, I'm going to tell you about a book I read that I thoroughly did not enjoy until the end. Like, we're talking the last two, maybe three chapters wrapped it all together and made it into a good book. Now, I say this with the caveat that I only read it once because I will not put myself through the boringness of the first part of that book ever again. But I distinctly recall reading Dan Brown's Deception Point and having this feeling as I read it. I'm just like ho-hum. And then the last couple of chapters literally take everything I didn't care about and wrapped it up into this neat little package. And that neat little package was stupendous. I don't want to go into great detail about it in case anybody wants to read it for themselves. But I will say you kind of have to be slightly masochist, masochistic. How do you say that? Well, you said it right. Masochistic. Okay, great. Uh, to make it to the end, but it is worth doing once. <laughs> That's an example of something where the ending made something good. Okay. Thank you for that uh, example. It's, they're hard to find. It. Yeah. If anybody else can think of an example where the ending not only elevated the experience, but turned a bad media absorbing experience into a good one, we want to know. Yeah. Bad or mediocre, taking it to the next level. I, I, making good great, I think, is more common. Yes. Um, but making something you're like, I don't know if I like this to being like, I did like it, I think is interesting. Um, we have an email from Mike, subject, worst scene in a good comic book. I enjoyed your unhinged discussion crossing every medium and genre about good endings, but I think there's a more interesting discussion related to Squadron Supreme. With the hilariously bad death of Tom Thumb in mind, can you think of a worse scene in an otherwise pretty good comic book? Off the top of my head, I really couldn't. I'm mostly enjoying this mini, but I laughed out loud at the white text off-screen death. <laughs> I'm not sure something has taken me out of a fairly well-done comic like that before. Anyway, thanks for the discussion, hopefully. 
can you think of anything? Well, I'm having trouble thinking of something. I know it, it, I can't think of a specific example, but I know that over the Claremont X-Men, sometimes it would just be like an offhanded thing, which is like. Yes. And then know, all the villains ran off or whatever. You know, like, um, well, luckily you came back after you got married or something like that. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> what yeah. happened? Uh, those things definitely happen. Not, not as blatant as the Tom Thumb one, though. It would. It There's would be nothing more... quite like that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I'm I trying can't... to think of anything like that. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine any writer making a move that is just so. I I think it tends to happen in uh, Marvel style written things, where like the like with Stan Lee, right? Like I think about like that, where uh, the the Fantastic Car flies into the bottle. <laughs> yeah and like they have like there's like some line of dialogue where it's like luckily you reached back and closed it or, or if there's some line explaining what happened because it just doesn't visually make any sense yeah and like you can just see like oh stan didn't have time to talk to kirby or get this redrawn so he's got this convoluted explanation of how they flew into a, a milk bottle or whatever <laughs> that is not exactly what happens but it is very 99 percent close i think i definitely remember laughing out loud at that at that panel yeah, and there's a few of those, like, kind of before Joe Sinek t- takes over, like, the comic is a little more uh, uh, slapdash, and there's just moments like that. Um, yeah. Um, we can't come up with one, but it definitely is a super funny experience when it's just like... It's probably something those first six Hulk issues, too. Oh, yeah, there's got to be in the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby stuff. Yeah, like with the Toad people or or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> like, this, that's all weird stuff. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, if you've got an example, email us. Uh, the worst scene in a good comic book, the worst panel or a couple of panels in a good comic book. I'd love to hear people's examples. Me too. For that. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, here's uh, an email from Pat. Uh, my fellow milksops, I just listened to your episode about Squadron Supreme 7 through 9, and then I immediately read issues 10 through 12. I think you agree that a great ending can't totally redeem a story, but it can improve it. I bought at least some of these issues when they came out in 1985. My only evidence of this, however, is that they sit bagged and boarded in one of my comic book boxes. I can't remember reading them. This is my first time reading it straight through. I can only assume that at age 15, I was just not that into the storyline. This time around, though, I definitely appreciated it more, and the ending had a lot to do with that. It's well-crafted, if not totally satisfying, end to a very ambitious story. We don't know how things will work out, just the sacrifice our heroes are willing to make. And man, can Mark fill a page with dialogue. He might even beat Stan. I've listened to and enjoyed all your episodes and comics I've already read uh, and hope to read many of your recommendations. I also really like your crash courses on Marvel series, especially Moon Knight, one of my favorites, uh, both the comics and the Disney series. My boxes hold a lot of Moon Knight comics. Your fellow milksop, Pat. (laughs) Uh, I think that's a good summation of uh, particularly your take on the Mark Grunewald's squadron stuff. And I think something that Gethard really crystallized for me was like, if you just outline the story points, it's really good, actually. it's I mm-hmm. think it's just in the execution that it like loses some. It's like the the wordsmithing, the dialogue. But the outline of the story is real gutsy and interesting. Uh, here's an email from uh, a guest of our podcast, Alex Segura, uh, novelist, comic book writer, uh, kind of does everything. Yeah. Uh, hey, gents. Thanks again for taking a few episodes to spotlight the series. He's talking about Squadron Supreme. I think I share your POV, specifically Will's, about the book. The idea is sound and interesting, but the execution is lacking. I've never read the book as it was coming out because I was too young and only read it for the first time a few years ago as research for my own superhero team. 
the Awakened, now available on Zest World, if that's your jam. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> uh, Zest World is what I said there, if you're curious. I don't want to rush through Alex's plug. Right. Uh, while I agree with the big concerns you guys bring up, clumsy dialogue, too many characters, over-reliance on continuity, I also think the art is something that wasn't discussed enough. Uh, Bob yeah. Hall is a very competent artist and has done a lot of good work. So this isn't a gripe against him. But imagine if, say, this book were drawn by someone else. Yeah. The Watchmen comps never end. But for a second, think about what the book might have felt like if Gibbons drew it. Yeah, It changes true. a lot. My point being the entire blame for doing it, for doing just a pretty good comic versus a perennial classic, doesn't just rest on the writer, but on the artist too. Paul Ryan, who would go on to do a nice run in Avengers and FF, is arguably a more versatile artist than Hall, but we only see him for an issue or two. Then we get one glimpse of potential greatness where John Buscema steps in for an issue. Now imagine if the Avengers team of Buscema and Palmer handled the art for the entire book. I think it would have greatly improved how people experienced Squadron. Overall, it's still a, a solid and ambitious take on the superhero team subgenre, and one I find myself thinking about a lot. Did it hit a Grand Slam home run like Watchmen? No, but no one really does, right? Thanks again uh, think, for creating a consistently fun and engaging podcast, Alex. I think he's exactly right. We didn't talk too much about it, and the yeah. art is workmanlike, and it's fine, but there's a lot of upside to be had there. Maybe the artist didn't have time. Certainly, it's challenging with so many characters to juggle and so much dialogue to fit in. It wouldn't have been easy, but what if John Romita Jr. does it? You know, mm -hmm. Someone who just seems to have a knack for simplifying complex things, or Paul Smith. Um yeah, I think we talked a little bit about the art at the very beginning, and then we didn't enough. We don't talk about the art enough in most of the things we cover. Um, uh, it's uh, absolutely true. Like that, that's, you know, who knows how many stories with terrific artists are, are in a way like covering up potential shortcomings in the story or the script or something. And sometimes great art inspires a writer to write less because mm -hmm. it's on the page you often hear about guys going oh i don't need to write four captions now that panel says it all and that would have probably helped squadron as well uh here's uh, an email from oh sorry anything else to say nope i agree with everything you just said um an email from ben tom thumbs abrupt death is the subject uh greetings milksop brothers I was 13 when this issue came out, and although my memories are slightly cloudy during those early teenage years, I do remember reading this particular issue and being surprised at the last panel. Generally, in Marvel and DC Comics, when a superhero death occurred, it was a big, hyped-up deal presented in detail in the ongoing storyline. This uh, intertitle card was a shock to me, and I think I ac actually felt more emotion than I would have if they had actually scripted and drew out the death scene. Hmm. Maybe it was because it was left up to the reader's imagination instead of being shown in the pages. I'm not sure exactly, but it did seem to hit me harder than, say, the death of Captain Marvel graphic novel, which I had read about three years earlier. Uh, not that it matters, but this is how I imagine it went down. While working in his laboratory, Tom Thumb falls from his chair. Ape X hears the noise and rushes to see Tom curled face down in a small heap on the floor. As she rolls him over, Tom says, Xena, I just wanted you to know that I love you even before I brainwashed you. <laughs> then with the last of his remaining strength, Tom reaches out with his tiny arms, pulls Apex close to him and kisses her with his dying breath. Put that on your screensaver, Will. <laughs> uh, call back to our joke that Will's phone is always a screensaver of uh, superheroes kissing. That's right. Um, you know, uh, I, I could see it. You know, the it, it, it was the abruptness could be a strength. You know, that's not how it went down for me, but um, 
but uh, I could imagine it going down that way for somebody. I don't know. Um, Justin, who often emails us with some official handbooks of the Marvel Universe facts, uh, has a compliment for you, Will. Okay. Uh, it uh, Will busted out some uh, official handbook of the Marvel Universe the other day, and it blew my mind. He almost verbatim cited the difference between Frankie and Johnny. Johnny could burn hotter and fly faster, but Frankie could burn longer and had more precise control over the range of his temperatures she could achieve. Uh, my guess is that Johnny could only make himself hotter or cooler as one would a stovetop burner. Uh, you know, one will raise a temp faster, but it's not exact. Frankie, though, is like an oven. She could set a temp exactly at 300 degrees. Will is impressive. <laughs> it's a high praise, Will. It is, although I have to say, like, I think John Byrne said that in the issue that we were covering. So Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily stop us from getting it right. <laughs> Here's what I do remember from the Marvel handbook. They tried to do, like, pseudo-biology to explain the human torch's powers and that whereas most human beings make ADP chemical, that Johnny made ATP, and the ATP is, like, on fire or something like that. Like, they tried to make a biological explanation for flame. Uh, that's all. So how's that? That that, that might be a little impressive. Maybe. Well, let's see. When Justin writes us back, we'll let us know whether you're impressive now or not. Okay. Uh, you got time for more, Will? One more. All right. Um, oh, this is a fun one. from. Uh, this is from Paul Fung, our producer. <laughs> um, he. This is subject, Concentrated Faves. Uh, dear Milksops, this email isn't specifically re related to your current episode, so you can save it for a rainy day. I'm reading it now, Paul. Think of it as an email equivalent of a fill-in issue. I was reading Avengers Annual 13 today. and Check out the credits. And I'm going to read you the credits, Will. Okay. Writer, Roger Stern. Ooh. Artists, Steve Ditko and John Byrne. What? Letterer, Joe Rosen. <laughs> Uh, colorist, somebody else. Uh, editor, Mark Grunewald, and editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. Wow. My question, is this a single issue with the most screw-it-related people working on it? Stern, Byrne, Ditko, triple points for him. Joe Rosen lettered a bunch of stuff, but most notably, Daredevil Born Again. Grunewald, big Jim Shooter. It's a real treasure trove of Milksop favorites. Uh, and Kay Fedunowitz, that's the uh, colorist, Played Matthew Broderick's dad in war games. Possibly untrue. <laughs> uh, the annual itself, the work of all these great creators, it's unremarkable. <laughs> That's the end of the email. <laughs> I was reading the Frank Miller Daredevils uh, a couple months ago, and Ditko does a fill-in issue where there's a Steve Ditko Daredevil issue. Um, and it was pretty good. The art was great. I mean, I I love Dicko's art. Yeah, even like in things like Speedball and stuff, I loved his art in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I feel like he peaked in Spider Man and and uh, maybe shortly after that in Charlton. Though his stuff in like the DC stuff he did shortly after that was also really good. But um, there's something about his art that still was exciting, even when he was like not as sharp as he had been before. I totally agree. Um. Okay, so, Kev, should we say what we're doing next? Yeah, uh, I think we mentioned it last week, but let's say it again. Uh, this episode coming out at the January or December 28th. The next episode is January 4th. Mm -hmm. And we probably we might do something else that episode, but if not, uh, that will be the start of our next season, which is Marvel Firsts, where we cover the 
first issues of all the main Marvel characters, Iron Man, Thor, Cap, not Captain America, Avengers, X-Men, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Uh, we'll start with like recapping the ones we've covered already. Hulk. Sure. FF, Hulk, and Amazing Fantasy 15, the, the big yeah. three. And then we'll kind of go through two an episode, probably covering uh, other ones. Yeah. Um, so, we might do something. We're probably going to have something else on January 4th, which we're not announcing yet. Uh, but if that isn't ready, then we will have Marvel firsts. Yeah. And so uh, please stick around and uh, and listen to us do that and send in your emails with some questions, please. I bet we'll cover a few emails during those episodes, even though they're not official correspondence ones. So keep writing us. Yeah, because we also we don't like to keep our podcast organized. We like to always be hard to pin down. I just think when, when whenever we do it, like it's, that's probably going to be about six weeks. And it feels I, like that's a I long agree. time not to answer any emails. Um, so please keep writing us. Uh, if you don't, then we won't have to answer any. That'll be nice. But all right. And I guess I don't care what you do. Yeah, whatever I you want. myself into either option. We're going to, you know what, we'll be fine. Okay, whatever you guys want to do, you can't affect us. And uh, we'll see you guys next episode. All right, bye, everyone. Bye. Screw it, screw it. We're just going to talk about comics.